we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. I'm Jessica Vaughn, Director of Policy Studies at the Center, subbing this week for Mark Krikorian. I'll be speaking with Rich Manti, who is Special Counsel and Statewide Prosecutor with the Florida Office of the Attorney General. Rich was one of the speakers at our second annual Conference on Combating Human Trafficking, which we co-sponsored with the University of Houston's Border Trade Institute, and it took place last month in Houston. Rich, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This month is National Human Trafficking Prevention Month, so I thought it would be an ideal time to speak with Rich about a year-long investigation he's been leading along with the grand jury in Central Florida. Among the topics that the grand jury looked into was the trafficking of illegal foreign migrants into Florida, and most concerning, the trafficking of children. So I want to talk about the results of the investigation and especially the recommendations that the grand jury came up with to deal with this problem, which I think are are really helpful for other states that are grappling with this. But first, a little bit of background. Rich, can you tell us why was the grand jury impaneled and what can it do? Because this is kind of a novel approach on the immigration issue. Yeah, Florida has a, a particular statute. Not a lot of other states have them, but in Florida... There are local grand juries. Every local circuit, and there are 20 of those in Florida, has its own prosecutor elected that they have their own, they have grand juries that report for duty in those circuits. But Florida also has the statewide grand jury, and the legal advisors to the statewide grand jury are assistant statewide prosecutors like myself. It's created by statute, and the mechanism is the governor can request the impanelment of a statewide grand jury, and there have only ever been 23 in the history of the state. But the Supreme Court is who actually impanels the the statewide grand jury. The Supreme Court signs off on whether there's going to be one. They decide where it's going to be venued. They decide what the parameters are for its investigation. Typically, statewide grand juries are impaneled to, you know, investigate and issue reports about lengthy, complex subjects. The uh, one prior to this, this current one that we're talking about today investigated all the school districts in the state of Florida in light of the Parkland shooting and had a lot of recommendations that came out of that. A statewide grand jury can indict and has indicted people, but that is not its primary function. Primary function is to make recommendations for changes either to the law or to current policies or refer matters for further investigation by the local grand juries or prosecutors as the DP. In this case, the Supreme Court gave us our marching orders, told us where we were going to convene, gave us a set of questions to try to answer, and so we went ahead and tried to do that. Okay. so. Some of the problems that the grand jury looked at included human smuggling, unaccompanied minors, and more. Why is this a problem for Florida? And what's been going on that inspired this? One of the events that sort of sparked a lot of notice to the problem, now the problem's been going on for a while just as it has everywhere, 
So Florida, of course, has a large population of people who are here from other countries, both legally and illegally. The best data we've gotten so far seems to indicate that there are about a million illegals here, and there are also quite a few. Of course, Florida has a very large Cuban population. As everybody knows, they've received a lot of Haitian refugees and other things. So Florida has a large population of immigrants. I think we're number three in the country behind Texas and California. So knowing that, what got a lot of heat was people in Jacksonville actually started noticing in about a four-month, five-month period of time, something like 75 flights that would come into some airports, particularly Jacksonville. They came in at like 2 a.m. They were unannounced largely. They were apparently a lot of children getting off the planes, jumping on buses and being departing for parts unknown. People got interested and curious about what was going on. They were worried about that this was you know, human trafficking. Our office, the statewide prosecutor's office, is very active in dealing with human trafficking. The attorney general here has a, an entire unit dedicated to that. They're very active and proactive about trying to go after that. Obviously, we have a lot of tourist industries, things of that nature that make human trafficking you know, sort of give it a lot more camouflage. You know, we have Super Bowls, mm-hmm. we have Disney parks, we have all kinds of things that tend to provide a lot of cover if people want to engage in that kind of activity, unfortunately. That being one of the genesis events sort of sparked the Supreme Court to sort of, you know, make its order. We do have a problem with human trafficking in this state, just like everybody else does. But ours is complicated by the fact that we have these additional folks from additional places who, you know, in many cases are are victimized by bad actors. We do have a, a gang problem here in Florida. That's something else our office handles. We do racketeering and gang prosecutions on a on a regular basis. So The idea is that you put prosecutors to help advise grand juries so that they can understand both the civil problem and the assistance to victims of trafficking that we want to provide, as well as see if we can't go about trying to put a dent in some of the criminal activity that associates and affiliates itself with this. It hurts Florida, it hurts people in Florida, and it hurts Florida's industries to have this happen. And so we want to do everything we can to combat it. Hmm. So what did you all find out about what was behind all of these flights. I mean, you know, certainly everyone is aware of what's been going on at the border and the influx of illegal migrants, but... Not everyone. (laughs) (laughs) The narrative associated with that is, is often that, you know, this is a humanitarian situation, people are fleeing oppression, or people are coming here to join family members. What's the link to criminal activity that was was found here? In a nutshell, it's the criminal syndicates and organizations. Uh, one of the things that we were instructed to look into was transnational criminal organizations. We know them by cartels. We know them by various names, but that's that's it. And those are the the, the large profit centers and profit drivers and industry drivers for this illegal alien uh, smuggling factory. In a nutshell. I should say that, you know, the grand jury is actually still ongoing. We're in panel. They they extended through April, so they're technically still in session. Mm. They issued five reports so far, including recommendations for several statutory changes, things like that. And, you know, the investigation remains ongoing. But as far as what's been publicly released, the fifth presentment sort of lays out in pretty thorough detail, I think, what they found as it relates to what's causing this. There are U.S. government policies because immigration, of course, is almost exclusively reserved to the federal province in 
under the Constitution, which make it easier for international criminal bad guys and bad girls to exploit uh, this situation. In a nutshell, they advertise in foreign countries that uh, you know you can come to the United States and be much more economically successful, which is, of course, false because our laws don't per- actually permit any kind of asylum claims for that reason. Right. We have a legal immigration system, but, yes. you know, it's not open yeah. to just anybody who wants to pick up and move here. We have, you know, right. a process. And, and these, are not, these are not refugees we're talking about. Refugees is kind of a whole category of people unto itself. Refugees have a very specific standard they have to meet, and refugees have a particular status. When it comes to the vast majority of people coming in, number one, what the grand jury found uh, and published was that better than two-thirds of them crossing, especially the southern border right now, actually enter the country illegally. Their first act coming to the country is the commission of a crime, and that is they cross somewhere illegally. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. And that is a crime. I, th- I think a lot of our listeners know, you know, despite what yeah. some say, it is illegal to cross illegally. Absolutely is. And if you've done it before, it's actually a much more serious crime, yes, yes. <laughs> which a lot of these folks, it turns out, actually, that's sometimes what happens. Sometimes they do that at the direction of criminal gangs. But what happens is these gangs advertise in these foreign countries. People get the wrong idea. They make this horrific migratory trek up through several countries. Usually they start in South America. They have to traverse dangerous jungle. They have to traverse mountains. They have to traverse desert. Some of these folks are taking children with them or sending children on their own which if any U.S. parent did that to their child, said, hey, why don't you go walk across the Appalachian Mountains or uh, <laughs> across the Sonoran Desert mm. and go find somebody to go live with, we put them in jail immediately. So yeah. this is activity that's going on, and these cartels charge pretty much every step along the way. They charge money to traverse their territory. They charge money to traverse to the border. They charge money to be smuggled. They require people to do all kinds of unspeakable things who can't give them that money. And so what this does is it fuels an an entire cottage industry of folks who put people in debt bondage under the false premise of you can just migrate to the United States. This is abetted by certain grand jury found certain federal policies that basically sort of invite this and make it more possible and more likely, particularly when it comes to the transport of children. Basically, if you can get to the southern border, the U.S. government will complete the delivery by flying you wherever in the country you want to go and guaranteeing you can stay here sometimes for years while you await an asylum claim that you are 90% likely to lose because you have no actual ground. And they do that for people who cross legally or illegally, which is sort of the real issue that the jury identified was there are so many people crossing illegally who are simply released into the United States rather than being detained, which is what the law actually says is supposed to happen. Florida actually sued the federal government over some of this, over the parole plus alternative to detention policy, which uh, I believe Florida won. (laughs) Yeah. Not that you'd know looking at the numbers lately. (laughs) (laughs) It's currently on appeal in uh, in the 11th Circuit, but, you know, what happens is typically even if the government agency is told by a federal court you can't do something, what they do is they rename their program, and that's, that's the grand jury found. They just renamed it something else, and now they're doing essentially the same activity under a different sort of name. Let's just repeat that a second. So federal courts have found that the current policies are not permissible, improper, and they've just been Correct. renamed 
And that's why we have a continuation and even an increase in people coming, crossing the border illegally, taking advantage of the system under the auspices of protection of these criminal enterprises. Yep. The federal court, I think it was Judge Weatherall in the Northern District of Florida, made findings just along those lines and said, you didn't follow proper process for doing this. This process does not comport with the actual law. And so you need to go back and redo this. And rather than actually doing that, DHS and, and HHS in particular have essentially continued the behavior, although they call it something different every time they get caught doing it. You know, the mm-hmm. Texas has sued them over it. And I believe Arizona at one point sued them over it. There is a lawsuit in Texas right now where 21 states are a party to it, challenging these programs. You know, I, mm-hmm. I think that concluded in September or October. And they're waiting on the judge to rule on that particular lawsuit. So, yeah, there are a number of federal courts that have weighed in on this and have said this is a process that doesn't comport with U.S. law. But nonetheless, the process continues. So what you have is a lot of children in particular placed in very vulnerable situations. But also the people who are brought here are in many times in debt bondage. And this is where the criminal organizations come in. They owe people. You know, they owe they or their families owe these criminal organizations who have presence here in the country. They're, they're everywhere. MS-13 is everywhere. And they have to do things, make money to repay the cost of their travel. Sometimes that involves just working and trying to make money. And that work is often done illegally because when you're just here immediately, you don't automatically get authorization to work. Yet people do work, and the grand jury discovered that. If you look at the earning suspense file, which the Social Security Administration maintains, you can get a good feel for how big that problem is. It's something like $2 trillion or $3 trillion right now as a result of that. So people are working illegally. People are sending money back across the border that would normally remain in the country, but that's now leaving our economy and going overseas. And a lot of times that's going to criminal organizations. They are paying people, bribing people, threatening people, or forcing people to send them money and then collecting it on the other end. So they're profiting on both ends of it. They profit on people getting here in the first place. They profit on people when they are here. And they really don't care whether you you know, get to stay for six or seven years while your court case winds on. And then on top of that, of course, the DHS rules for deportation priority basically leave almost everyone here. I think the, the number of ICE arrests and ICE actual deportations or removals, according to their latest reports, you know, less than 2% of the people who actually get here are actually removed from the country, even though they are court-ordered to be gone. There are something like somewhere between four and 500,000 people on what they call these non-detained dockets who are convicted felons. Yeah, yeah. So... People are, you know, the grand jury pointed out, look, you've got an awful lot of people coming in, shouldn't be coming in, and you've got almost, you know, relatively speaking, compared to, you know, prior years, almost nobody actually leaving, even if they're supposed to be leaving. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, you have situations where, and in particular, when it comes to the children being trapped and exploited, you have a department, which is HHS and ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, that releases them to people who are almost completely unvetted on the flimsiest of bases, and they cease to basically care at that point. Once they've, the idea is, and the all the policy memos and all these speeches and everything else like that, 
are on efficient processing of people as opposed to actual vetting of places that they're being processed to. I want to talk about definitely some of the specific policies that are implicated or that the grand jury found were problematic. And if you could maybe explain like how this translate to trafficking and and are there any examples of this in Florida? And and then, you know, considering that so many of the people who've ended up in this predicament are kids, you know, why that's a kind of a special situation too. Sure. The grand jury found uh, in its first and second presentments, really, that a lot of people who were being trafficked, smuggled into Florida, uh, whether it's for sex purposes or labor purposes, the, our laws weren't adequately addressing that because our laws were premised upon the idea that the federal government wouldn't be effectively complicit in those sorts of operations. So one of the first things they did was they recommended that Florida beef up its human smuggling law. And the legislature actually did that in their last session. They went not quite as far as the grand jury recommended, but they did change the law. There have been, in the past couple of months, you know, three or four arrests of individuals under that new smuggling law just went into effect in October. So we're waiting to see how that comes out. But basically now, uh, what you're able to do is address the situation where we have folks bringing in people, for example, in, in one instance, I think in Hernando County, Florida Highway Patrol interdicted a van where there were five or six people in it. The driver was illegal. He knew everybody in the van was illegal. There was a child with them. And they were just on their way. He was knowingly transporting individuals who had come into the country illegally. They were there only legally, and they were all supposedly going to illegally work at work sites in the state of Florida. So they've been arrested. They've been charged. And interestingly enough, the consulate from the state of Mexico came out with a statement that fraudulently and falsely described the actual circumstances of the arrest and have been fairly quiet since the facts actually came out. So that case would be <laughs> pending as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was interesting to see the government of Mexico defend a smuggler who was himself here illegally, had been deported before, and was bringing people, including a kid, across state lines for a reason other than work. Yeah, you'd have to ask them uh, their reasons for feeling to do that, but you know, they have the consulate officer in Orlando came out fairly strongly publicly saying that he didn't like our law. <laughs> Mexico, of course, has problems with these criminal organizations and these cartels, which, which effectively dominate northern Mexico. Probably the northern third of Mexico isn't really much under the government's control. It's under cartel control. There have been gunfights. They invaded and took over part of Texas's sovereign territory, Fronton Island, had to be forcibly evicted by the Texas Department of Public Safety. This helps explain why we don't get much assistance from Mexico generally on this issue. Yeah. That's one of the reasons. We'll talk about another one later. But yeah, one of the one of the things the grand jury said was, you know, perhaps you ought to get your own house in order before you start worrying about how Florida is trying to deal with the mess that you create, <laughs> helped create. And decidedly behavior undiplomatic. And I know that having been a diplomat before and just, you know, commenting on another country's laws in that way is pretty surprising. It was uh, it was rather bold, but you know that's their business. They you know they can say what they want to say, I guess. So that was one of the things the grand jury did very first was to recognize that there is in fact a problem and make a recommendation to do it. And to their credit, I think the legislature acted in the best way they could at the time. The grand jury also found out, and most disturbingly, I think, to based upon the reporting, that a lot of these people who are being trafficked are in fact children. Uh, now 
There are some who aren't really children, and just to sort of showcase the laxity of, of the vetting policies and processes of, the, of ORR, we had one who claimed to be 16, came in as a supposedly unaccompanied minor from Honduras. Well, in fact, he was 24. ORR missed the vetting process entirely on him, transported him to Jacksonville, straight to a sponsor whom he promptly murdered. And mm-hmm. when I say murdered, he butchered this man. He stabbed him over 70 times. He beat him to half to death with a chair, all on video. And so the currently serving a prison term. And when you see a picture of him, it's hard to imagine how he was not <laughs> flagged as a minor imposter <laughs> rather than an actual kid. The problem is that essentially, as the grand jury has described, when someone shows up at the border, especially if they show up without ID, Border Patrol doesn't have a lot of authority to do anything other than kind of take them at their word as to who they are, where they're from, and how old they are. Mm. The only way to get around some of that is to maybe roll their fingerprints. The problem is if they don't have a criminal record in this country, that's essentially useless as far as doing anything because a lot of countries either don't have those records or don't make them available to the United States. Yeah, good point. So you, you see what you see down there at the border with all this border litter where people abandon IDs and abandon these fake passports and things that got them through Mexico because they would rather not be found out for who they really are. That's assuming they're even caught at the border at all, and not one of the almost a million now, or is it 750,000 known gotaways every year. That's a sort of separate issue. As far as the kids go, yeah, they are terribly vetted as far as that goes. The sponsors are even less vetted, and ORR had to admit, and has admitted publicly, that a significant portion, and it turns out probably more than 50% of the people that they place these children with, are in fact not in the country legally themselves. In addition mm-hmm. to that, two-thirds of them are not the children's parents. They are either unrelated or some sort of, you know, supposed relation, but of course nobody actually does a DNA test to make sure of that. These children are taken and sent to various locations around the country where a contracted organization, these are NGOs, and the NGOs are problematic because a lot of the NGOs help these people get here in the first place by, you know, encouraging or enticing them to come through this nasty, brutal jungle and over these rivers. But they don't bother to tell people, oh, yeah, you're going to get shot at by cartels. You might get eaten by an alligator. They do go so far as to help hand out rape kits, the jury found. Um, the international, the IOM, the International Office of Migration, actually hands out kits to women because they know they're going to be raped. And they encourage the, that they make the trip anyway, which is bizarre thinking. Yeah, I thought that was a really strong part of the report, pointing out that irony that these NGOs are encouraging people and helping people make this dangerous, traumatic, sometimes sometimes fatal journey without truth and advertising as to what's involved and how they could possibly end up on the other end. And sure. are doing this funded by whom? Well, the IOM is, is funded in large part by uh, this country through the Department of State. Right. So by, with our tax dollars. Yes, that is their single largest donor. The NGOs are often sort of either sponsored by or sort of co-opt or adopt the name of a religious organization. For example, um, some of the, the larger ones that operate nationally are HIAS, which is the Hebrew International Aid Society, or Catholic Charities, or Lutheran Services, not all of them operate everywhere. 
in Florida, just to again highlight the issue with the unaccompanied minors, one of the places that operates here is Jewish Family Services. They operate a facility in which a child was sent. Turns out he was actually 17, but when he got here, he had disclosed that he was epileptic to Border Patrol doctor, but he had denied that he was epileptic to some of the people at the center. However, of course, they have all this information in their UAC portal. The case manager, turns out, didn't actually read all the documentation before she went ahead and uploaded because she was she was busy. This is what the sheriff's office investigation found and what the grand jury's report disclosed. Hmm. And that child died of an epileptic seizure because the doctor who examined him here in Florida wasn't told that he might have epilepsy. So <sighs> that is one that is another issue that that has come up. But as far as the, the children themselves too, who they are being sent to is the largest problem that the grand jury commented on. The vetting process for what's called sponsors is absurd and lax. Uh, it's often done by people who have, it's, it's intentionally done by people who have no law enforcement training whatsoever and access to mm-hmm. zero law enforcement databases whatsoever. These are NGOs make it a point not to hire any cops or ex-cops or retired cops or anything like that. People who ask questions. Right. Or might be skeptical about a claim. <laughs> right. They hire social workers, which, okay. But what happens is they are operate essentially as a, as a quick and dirty pass-through. In some cases, these NGOs, particularly some of the ones in the pop-up shelters in California, they have these children for as few as 14 days. They supposedly run a thorough, complete, total background check on the child and the supposed sponsor that they're going to, and then they send the child and they drop the child. The problem is that these people are unvetted. They don't do criminal background checks because they can't. And in many cases, they don't even... they. they course, don't do DNA testing to, to verify claims. But there were a litany of cases documented by the grand jury where people were sent to addresses like strip clubs or that multiple children were sponsored by multiple individuals, all supposed to be living in the same house. One guy in Texas, I think they said, had somewhere around 100 children sent to him. So the wow. process is fraught with all kinds of shortcomings. And again, the emphasis is on speedily discharging these children. And the real problem, one of the biggest problems, is that once they place this child, ORR and HHS say, well, it's no longer legally our problem. We have no custody and no authority. So once they're gone, they're gone. They don't follow up with these children. They make a, they supposedly make an effort to make three phone calls. And if someone answers, great. And if no one answers, okay. Either way, the result is the same. ORR shakes the dust from its shoes and walks away. That is astounding. The lack of sense of responsibility for what happens to the kids that have been in their custody. Yeah, and the grand jury pointed out that that appears to actually be in violation of, of federal law. And the Senate actually has pointed that out to them, not once, but at least twice. And they persist in, yes. in adhering to that doctrine. So yeah, these children are placed with, in more than two-thirds of the cases, someone who is not their parent in a place that they have never been, where they may or may not speak the language. And what happened in Florida is that when you do that, Legally speaking, these children are in limbo. They have no parent or legal guardian. No court has found that that any of these people are legal guardians. They have no status. No one can make them go to school. No one can sign off on medical treatment for them. So the children are at risk, and they have nobody to call. Mm -hmm. And how, how does that compare with the law in Florida on, say, foster care placement? Foster care is is you have a court involved from the get-go. 
You have the Department of Children and Families making uh, home visits. You have law enforcement agencies running background checks. To be a foster parent in Florida, is one another one of the things Grand Jury pointed out, the process is exacting. It's not perfect. And, you know, the foster care system is not the best place for, for all children, but it's better than what ORR does. It's about as difficult to adopt a pet as it is to get an unaccompanied minor child from ORR. Uh, <laughs> so it's a, it's a huge double standard for kids coming in as illegal unaccompanied minors. Amazingly, like the, you know, and the, the, the grand jury actually pointed out, they said, look, we don't think that just because the U.S. government agency brought them here and they were foreign born, that they should be less protected than anybody else. This, you, you asked about some of the recommendations they made. The third presentment, they said, look, we think that people who get custody of these children here in our state, we're giving you the most precious thing our state has, and that's a child. You have a child, you should have to go to court, and you should have to say, judge, I want to adopt this child, or judge, I want to be named the child's legal guardian. If you don't do that, you shouldn't have that child. That at mm-hmm. least gives the child some legal status, some legal recourse, and it involves the courts at a minimum, someone is looking out for that child. So that, that recommendation remains pending. Yeah, That one is out there, but that was one of the big ones that the, the grand jury made as far as that goes. Because what happens is these folks don't, you know, a lot of the sponsors, they're, you know, if they're not, especially if they're not here legally, don't really have any interest in seeking out a court. And many times that leads to situations where they are now able to exploit this child freely, whether it's put them in trafficking, make them work, whatever, to help pay off or pay rent or pay off smuggling debts or all those things, that subjects these children to essentially completely at the whim of whoever they're stuck with. Several hundred of them every Mm -hmm. year run away from sponsorships altogether. They end up in our Florida dependent care system. They get, you know, picked up as runaways. They wind up in our foster care and dependency system anyway. There's at least 400 every year on a sort of a rotating basis. For at least 400 formerly unaccompanied kids who were placed with non-relative sponsors who run away and end up yeah. getting picked up in the Florida child welfare system because the system is so dysfunctional. Right. And some would argue those are the lucky ones because at least now somebody's looking out for mm. them. So yeah, there are several hundred every year. So yes, it is a very real event in Florida. There have been you know all kinds of stories and even in the regular media of children who are exploited for labor purposes. And in particular in Florida, that's a concern because our building trades, our agricultural trades, you know, our hospitality trades, three of the big industries in Florida are sort of have been historically problematic sometimes for that very sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw there was a sentencing just recently of a woman or maybe it was a couple who were busted for providing illegal workers in the construction industry and part of that they they had evaded 9 million in taxes and insurance premiums for injured workers. The case out of Key West that handled a lot of that. They were providing illegal temp workers to a lot of different places and agencies knowing that they were illegal, providing them phony documents and everything like that. Federal case, federal prosecution out of the Key West area down there. Mm. So, can I ask you something? Sure. How do you think it is that the NGOs who are playing a role in this are able to rationalize this system. So they're key players in a system that is allowing kids to be smuggled and trafficked into the United States 
and be trafficked for forced labor and or who end up in abusive situations once they're here. Why are they participants in this? Why are they not raising some kind of alarms? What what are they saying about this? Well, the grand jury actually brought several of the, not only the case managers, the, the worker level people in um, as they disclosed in the report, but they, they addressed it to some of the CEOs now in Florida and they're not all operating. Some of the most egregious stuff goes on in, in these pop-up shelters like in Texas and California, where you get a single source contract to a vendor mm-hmm. for six months, they make a hundred million dollars a month. And then the, the facility shuts down and everybody, you know, all the roaches scatter into the rocks and come out later and get another single source contract. Cherokee Federal was one that ran a facility like that in Pomona. Cherokee Federal doesn't operate in Florida. The big three in Florida are Catholic Charities, Lutheran Services, and Jewish Family Services. But what do they get out of it? The Grand Jury Fund, these these folks are making hundreds of millions of dollars through government contracts to do this kind of work. They are paid, you know, it's something like thirty or forty thousand dollars, I think, per child. When you add it all up, but ORR has a wow. two point one billion dollar budget every year. These NGOs get it, and you know the the CEOs of these NGOs are all clocking well into the six figures. And there was the grand jury remarked there was one of them who said, "Look, my organization, my NGO, could not operate without this money, and so I will do what ORR tells me to do, even if it's contrary to Florida law." <laughs> Whoa! Flat out said that that he would, you know, that's the way it was. We, you know, they, they pointed out, the grand jury pointed out, they said, look, we told them you're screwing things up. We told them your processes are problematic. And they said, eh. Now, the res- response from ORR, there you know, used to be a requirement in federal law that all these child homes, for example, placement homes, be licensed. Well, there's not currently a single one in the state of Florida with a valid license because Florida took action to say, look, if you're not going to comply with Florida law, we're not going to issue you a license for this. ORR's response was to propose a rule, uh, which among other things, says that uh, that licensing requirement, you can now just be uh, okayed by us. They have actually dispensed with the licensing requirement through addendums to their contracts with these NGOs so that they can continue to operate in Florida without having to worry about being inspected by the Department of Children of Them. That's outrageous. They'd rather operate utterly without standards to protect kids yes. than yes. try to upgrade or, you know, or, or go without that money or, or what have you. They seem to right. be willing participants in a system that is just leading to abuse of children and horrible situations and, and perverse incentives for people to come because they're making a lot of money off of it. And they're doing this in, you know, really going out of their way to evade any attempt by the state of Florida to bring some protections into it for the kids. And here's something further. The grand jury also reported, the grand jury issued Florida Supreme Court subpoenas, all right, subpoenas under the auspices of the Florida Supreme Court, which is who convened them, to some of these NGOs demanding, you know, we want to know where you're sending these children. We want the addresses for these sponsors. And they refused. They said, ORR told us we can't, so we won't. And you can put us in jail, <laughs> or you can ask a judge to hold us in down, or whatever, but we're not going to give it to you. And they know, of course, uh, and the grand jury documented this, they know the grand jury is only convened for X number of months, and they know that even if they referred it to court to be litigated as far as whether contempt sanctions would be imposed, the grand jury would long be done by the time that ruling came back. Mm. So they're trying to run out the clock. 
Well, they did, yeah, and successfully did. But, you know, the grand jury said we found other ways to get most of the information we needed. And, you know, part of that, <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was affirmative obstruction by some of these organizations to the point that they were ordering people not to comply with subpoenas. You know, in other words, subject yourself to the threat of jail because we want to keep that money flowing. And these are operating with our tax dollars. Yes. I did notice, however, that the number one recommendation in, in the fifth report, at the very end, there's a, a summary of all the recommendations, that the number one recommendation is more investigations by the grand jury into, into these problems. It's, it's like the, the classic, you know, if you're given three wishes, what's your first wish? More wishes. So I, I hope that, that that will continue because these are really serious matters that cry out for attention. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if, if that comes to pass. But yeah, the, there, there was enough, the grand jury apparently found that there was enough questionable activity going on on the part of some of these organizations that it warranted a full-blown investigation. Because of course, this grand jury's mandate isn't, ju- isn't just to investigate NGOs. It was to investigate the transnational crime, to investigate you know what's going on with the smuggling and everything else like that. It, it's almost a corollary investigation when you get into the NGO financing and NGO activity. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a source. That is a particular cog in this wheel, but it's not the only cog. And the grand jury had other, other things they had to do. But they said, we think another grand jury should be impaneled just to look into these NGOs. So we'll see if that happens. I don't know if it will. And then they made a number of other recommendations that are a lot of times just kind of common sense. Again, they're trying to look out for these children, trying to close some of these loopholes and fix sort of wrinkles in Florida law that help people slide under the radar. Like you're familiar with the special immigrant juvenile mm-hmm. loophole in particular. And that was one of the things that they say people are trying to exploit Florida's law here. We think you can beef up Florida's law. And so they made that recommendation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about some of these recommendations. That one on the special immigrant juveniles is is very important, I think. It's a green card petition process that's available for kids who are supposedly abused, neglected, or abandoned by one of their parents. We give a green card for that. And the first step in that process is to get an order of dependency from a state family court. And so the the grand jury is recommending that these petitions only be granted in the case of kids who are already in the care of the state Department of Children and Families, which I think makes perfect sense. You can't have people coming in and just filing petitions under a process that's intended to protect abused kids, you know, just to get a green card. Right. And the Florida Supreme Court actually pointed out uh, in, in some cases that they decided written opinions by our Supreme Court that this was a sort of problematic statute in several respects. And one of it was uh, they documented, and I think that this is in the the report itself, the fifth presentment, that people could easily take advantage of this by saying, well, when I was a four-year-old child in Guatemala, my dad abandoned my family. And therefore, now that I'm 15 and living with my godmother here as a UAC, I am now going to claim that because of that abandonment over a decade ago in another country where I'm not complaining that my current sponsor has abandoned me or that I have any problems at all whatsoever here, what I want to do is is, uh, get this special immigrant juvenile visa because maybe I'm a gang member, maybe I have a criminal history, maybe whatever is going on, I can't get citizenship any other way, so I'm going to try and gain this particular dependency 
issue now. The Florida trial court and the Florida appeals court had both pointed out that, look, you're trying to gain the system. Our statute isn't meant for this. And the Florida Supreme Court says, you're right, it's not meant for that, but it doesn't explicitly prohibit that sort of gaming. And so you can't really deny this visa on that basis. One of the recommendations of the jury was fix that. You know, it's easily fixable. That needs to be closed. The Supreme Court itself pointed out the absurdity of this and just said, look, the statute's badly drafted. You need to fix it. And mm-hmm. so that's what they did. That's a good recommendation. And, and the one on the UAC sponsors requiring them, anybody who sponsors a UAC who's not the biological parent or a court-ordered legal guardian, to come forward, as you mentioned, and get a formal legal determination from the family court and thereby take on some actual responsibilities and accountability for this kid. It puts these children on the same footing as U.S.-born children. In other words, if you're going to take custody of a U.S.-born child, whether it's through adoption or whatever, a court has to find that you're a legal guardian. You can't just walk out and sell your child to someone. Uh, and and have that be, you know, countenance by the court. You'll be arrested for child abuse or neglect or whatever, you know, smuggling, trafficking, the whole thing. And this puts these unaccompanied children who are born in other countries at least on an equal footing with with U.S.-born children, which I think, you know, it's it's not only just a common sense thing, but somebody has to look out for these children because clearly in many cases, several hundred every year that we know of in the state of Florida, as well as all the unreported runaways, mm-hmm. those people aren't looking out for these kids. Right. And these are the kids who then, if they weren't being trafficked before, they certainly become vulnerable at that point when they are runaways. Easily. And that's, you know, even the New York Times is starting to, to get into the, that particular fight. You know, you know, a lot of times people want to just focus on the, the sexual exploitation where you find these, you know, these 14-year-old girls in massage parlors. Well, that's true, but you also find the, the 14-year-old boys in slaughterhouses or, you know, out in the strawberry fields or wherever. Or on construction sites. Right. We wouldn't tolerate this behavior from any responsible custodian in this country for children who are born here. And so the idea that it would be tolerated accountants just because the child isn't born here is all kinds of problematic, I think, for this jury as, as they documented in their presentment. Yes. Well said. And that's really the whole issue in a nutshell, I think. Well said. One more question for you, Rich. We talked earlier about the fact that the Mexican government doesn't have full control over parts of its own territory, but there's another reason why they have not been eager to help us deal with this border problem. Can you talk about that? Sure. There's actually about 58 billion reasons every year. What the grand jury found out, and this is all publicly available data, is that about 5% of Mexico's GDP comes from remittances from this country. And by remittance, I mean, Somebody here in a non-commercial setting who sends money directly into Mexico, they depend on that money. Now, there are countries down there, you know, El Salvador, 26% of their GDP is remittances. Honduras, 28%. Nicaragua, 22%. But Mexico gets far more in terms of the gross amount of money. It was $58 billion at least. And what happens is the grand jury looked into this, particularly as it relates to Florida. We know that there are a couple hundred banks, almost 200 banks, and about three or 400 what we call money transfer, like Western Union, MoneyGram, that sort of thing, who operate in Florida. And mm-hmm. the remittance is used not only by the criminals here to launder proceeds of criminal activity. You know, you sell your drugs here, you remit the money back to Mexico to your buddies in Mexico, and it, your money's clean all of a sudden. 
So you don't have to ship that bulk cash back over the border where Border Patrol might find it. You just send it in the form of remittances. Mm. And so it's not only the proceeds of criminal activity. There are also, you know, the media have gotten stories of people who are actually staging kidnappings in order to force people to remit money to ransom people who are living in the U.S., ransom them from their kidnappings. But the biggest thing is that simply there are, and, and children are having to work, and children are, are sending remittances. They're not supposed to be allowed to, but they get fake documents or they get people who, you know, collaborate with them to do this. $58 billion every year to just to Mexico. So what happened was we looked into how much of that's coming from Florida. And it turns out the grand jury found that just from the state of Florida alone, in one year, they got results from six institutions. They've subpoenaed three banks and three money transfer organizations. So six out of a couple hundred, several hundred. In one year period, 17 million transactions. These are non-commercial transactions mm. starting in Florida and ending overseas out of the country. Aggregate value of those 17 million transactions, $5.2 billion. Wow. That is four transactions at $300 a pop for every alien, every non-citizen living in Florida, legal or illegal. And they analyzed the pattern of some of those transmissions. So why would a person from Venezuela be sending money to the border of Mexico, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's not necessarily to their grandmother. Yeah. So what's going on is, is stuff like that, too. Now, some of this activity is completely legitimate. It's people just trying to help out their friends. But the problem is, this is money that's leaving Florida's economy. It's not being taxed. It's not being anything else. Uh, and it's being sent overseas, and it will not be coming back. So the grand jury said, why don't we do what Oklahoma does, which is look, if you're going to send money out, we're going to tax it. It's going to out of the country. We're, we, think, we think Florida should at least try to recoup some of that because we can put it to use. They said, well, you can use it to, to help with some, implement some of our other recommendations. Yeah. You can use it for all kinds of good purposes. So, you know, it's put a dent in trafficking and, and criminal activity where we can, make it less convenient. And they said, look, if you want to try to get a refund, Sure, go ahead and apply for a refund. Oklahoma allows that, but you have to actually file a tax return. You have to actually come down and identify yourself, bring yourself out of the... Out of the shadows. Right, there you go. And you can do it. So they're, saying, they're already charging these, these banks and transfers. They already charge all these fees just to make these transfers. They're talking about imposing a, like a 1% additional fee, you know, mm -hmm. which is on a transfer of $300 is three bucks, right? It's an ATM fee. And in Oklahoma, 92% of the people who don't ever apply for these things. So that tells you what percentage of this is maybe not on the up and up. But in Florida, if you did that, just based on this, these, you know, if you use these as a rough, roughest of rough calculations, it's $40 million a year to the state coffers. And that's, that's getting right to the heart of this whole issue of illegal migration and its participants. Billions of dollars leaving just this state in just one year. Billions a year from one state. Hmm. Wow. And that's going to require legislation, correct? Yeah, it does. It will require the, the legislature to pass a law, just like Oklahoma did. Mm -hmm. uh, they've had theirs on the books for more than a decade now. But that was one of the recommendations, is to try and address, at least address, expose some of the money pipeline. Yeah. But if you ask why Mexico might want to take those actions and make those statements that it did, they have 58 million reasons or 58 billion reasons every year. <laughs> right, right.
Thanks again for joining us, Rich. And listeners looking for more information can go to the links in the show notes that we'll put on our website. And I, I really do encourage folks to read the grand jury reports. Um, they're one of the most exhaustive and illuminating reports available ever on the effects of the current border policies. I want to thank you guys. I mean, this, you know, this grand jury, this is just the voice of the citizens. These are 20 people from various parts of Florida, not a government body, not a think tank, not anything like that. This is just the uh, regular folks doing the work that they volunteered to do. It's not like they're, make, they're getting paid much to do it. So <laughs> I appreciate you uh, bringing some light to this and, and I appreciate, you know, making this information available to the public because these are all public records, public reports now. All right. Thank you so much. Very impressive. Thank you. That's it for this week's Parsing Immigration Policy. And this show is the first in a series that we're doing for National Human Trafficking Prevention Month, which is January 2024. I hope you will check back for the next episodes on this topic. Thank you so much for listening. This is Jessica Vaughn from the Center for Immigration Studies. 